independent, expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Good evening and welcome to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, we are very happy to have Mark Nathan. Nathan has the kind of experience in the music business that is at once rare and common. He hustled his way into, the working, into working for a record label when he was only 15 years old and rode the wave of the heyday of rock and roll. Since his early start, he has worked in A&R, promotions, artist management, and for a major music electronics company. His dance card includes turns with Sire Records, Playboy's Berserkly imprint, RCA, IRS, ATCO, Atlantic, and Universal Music Group. In short, he's been around the block and has a wealth of knowledge to share. So listen up, folks. Mark is here to tell us what the straight dope is about a career in the music business. Welcome to Independence Day, Mark. Thank you so much, Joe. I'm very, very happy to have you here. I'm really glad to I be mean, here. Your, your experience uh, is so wide and so deep. Like, I'm, I'm not even sure exactly where to begin because, you know, I've known you, you know, kind of in a cursory fashion for a while. So I mean, I'm going to be learning about your, your history as well as our, our legion of fans out there. Excellent. So tell me, you know, this you're 15 years old. Well, I let's, mean, let's go back before that. Oh, even before that. Let's go back before that. In the beginning, there was darkness. Well, let's, no, let's, let's examine. I'm in the idea that at eight years old, I was sitting in front of the television set mm-hmm. and the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan. That's, a, that's an excellent place to start. That, that's like the big bang for modern pop rock music, yeah, modern rock music. It'll never happen again. It can't. It, it's just the fragmentation of cable television and, and you know, all the distractions that people have. Yeah. The, the idea that more than one third of the television sets in the United States tuned in to see the Beatles on Ed Sullivan is uh, is monumental and and it changed my life yeah a I mean, lot of people's know, lives yeah one day one day you're just a kid you know flipping baseball cards and the next day you're growing your hair long and going yeah 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 it's the it's the, it's the shot heard around the world man it really really was absolutely my mom saw the beatles i was uh i was actually born as i should maybe should admit this i was born a beatles song was the number one song in america when i was born nice but it was it was a bad beatles song it was a uh, long and winding road yeah, that's a bad one. But at least it was the Beatles, which is more than I can say for a lot of kids I know. You know, it's like there's kids being born under Lady Gaga and and who knows what else. I mean, yeah, that's everything. horrifying. Yeah. So at least it was a Beatles song. So so basically, um I grew up in New York City. I grew up in a small uh, in a suburb of New York City, the borough of Queens, and uh, a a town called Forest Hills, which had the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium and Forest Hills High School, which included some rather uh Interesting alumni, uh, Art Buckwald, mm-hmm. Captain Kangaroo, uh, yes. uh, Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel, the Ramones, and Jerry Springer, who amusingly became mayor of Cincinnati, Ohio. Right. Yeah. But um, Forest Hills had this tennis stadium, and, uh, and the Beatles played Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. Wow. And I lived in an apartment building that was 22 stories high, and I was on the 19th floor, and that tennis stadium was roughly three quarters of a mile away and you could just hear girls screaming for two and a half hours. I was too young to have gone to the show, but I remember I can, I can visualize and you know, the audio of opening my window and just hearing this 
shriek for two and a half hours yeah. was amazing. And it's funny when you see those old pictures, the kind of PA systems they had. I mean, they're essentially playing through amps. Yeah. And then, you know, that's one of the reasons amps got bigger in that period was because of the Beatles. Yeah. And uh, they needed more volume. And then like this just a little PA sack like you'd see in a church that they were singing through. It's exactly. so funny to think what they were trying to fill up Shea Stadium in these big giant places with these little stacks. I don't know how anybody heard over those girls. My mother was one of them. She saw them in Chicago. Nice. She, she has one picture. She said she held the camera up overhead, took the picture, and then she, I, I think I have it actually. Amazing, amazing. So anyway, I, so back to the Beatles. That's that's the touchstone. Yeah. So well, so that was the touchstone. Of course, you know, I started growing my hair out long, and we had two top forty radio stations in New York City: WABC and WMCA. Now WABC was very tight, and they had about a twenty song playlist. WMCA was at 57, 570 on the dial. Mm -hmm. And so every week there was a little newspaper, a throwaway newspaper that you could pick up at the local record store, head shop, department yeah, store yeah. called Go Magazine. And it would have the WMCA fabulous 57 and then it would have a short shot and a long shot. So uh -huh. they played 59 records. So I was predisposed to wanting to hear that station because they played more music. And I would go with my allowance and I would buy 45s and I would pick up my Go magazine. I would buy the bottom two or three because I felt sorry for them. And I thought if I <laughs> bought them, they would move up the chart. Yeah. So consequently, I bought a lot of crazy records and a lot of really, you know, things that are ingrained in my personal history. And people look through my record collection. They're like, never heard of it. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. But in those days with record stores, you could walk into a store and the guy behind the counter knew who you were and right. he knew your taste. And I was 13 years old and he said, I know you like the Beatles. Check this out. And he handed yeah. me an album and it was called Naz, N-A-Z-Z. Uh -huh. And uh, I took it home and I opened it up and then the first track of the record played, it was called Open My Eyes. Uh-huh. And it opened my eyes. Yeah. And um, basically, all songs written by Todd Rundgren, arranged by Todd Rundgren, produced by Todd Rundgren. So what year would this have been? This was 1968. Okay. And uh, I had yet to go to my first live concert. I... Uh, I had yet to uh, smoke my first uh, illicit cigarette. Jazz cigarette. <laughs> and... Uh, and my world changed once again with "Open uh, My Eyes" by Naz. Let's hear a taste of that. Let's 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 roll with this. This is a uh, you know uh, pretty natural Todd Rundgren with Naz. All right, so that's Open My Eyes, uh, Naz, which is Todd Rundgren's first band. Let's play a little bit. Talk talk a little bit more. You, this, right. is, this is like your kind so, of introduction. So it was, you know, all of a sudden I had a new hero. And um, Naz put out that first album, and then they followed it with a second record, which was 
incredibly titled Naz Naz, and it was on red that's vinyl. That's as bad as Peter Gabriel. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, oh, I have a great story later, but remind me to tell you the Foghat story. Um, so Naz Naz, and then Naz broke up. And by 1970, I'm now in high school. And, um, and I learned that with the breakup of Naz, Todd Rundgren is going to make a solo record. And so his first album, you can't really tell whether it's a solo album or it's a new band. It's called Runt. Okay. And there's a picture of just him on the cover. But then when you open up the record, you see that Soupy Sales Kids, Hunt and Tony oh, are yeah. in the band. And so it's Were a they band. the ones who went on to do Tin Machine? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Um, so... So anyway, there's this Todd Rundgren record, Runt, and I, again, run to my local record store, and I pick up this album. And uh, there's a single on the album called We Gotta Get You a Woman. And uh, anyway, the story goes that the label copy had six songs on the first side and four on the second side. Okay. My record had seven songs on the first side and five on the B side. Okay. So... There were these two mystery songs, and I'm an inquisitive 15-year-old kid, and I'm full of music. I buy records every week. And you've got lots of free time because you're 15. I'm 15. I'm in high school. And, uh, and Forest Hills High School, we had 1,100 kids. So we were in at 7, and I was out by about noon. So I had a lot of free time. Yeah. So, more, more than most 15-year-olds even. So I did what any pushy 15-year-old middle-class Jewish kid from Forest Hills might do. I wrote a fan letter to Todd and I said, bought your solo album and I don't understand. The label copy says six songs and four and mine has seven and five. And, you know, I sent it to him. So about three weeks later, I come home from high school and my mother says, you got a package. Okay. Which when you're 15 is a big deal because you're not getting a lot of mail yeah, you don't at get, 15 years right. old. You don't get packages. I you, know, mean, you get your new like decoder ring from the like, cereal well, box. Well, actually, most, you know, most kids were reading comic books. Yeah, I was yeah. reading Billboard. Yeah. You know, I had yeah. a subscription to Record World magazine. Huh. You know, those were the kind of things I'd get in the mail. But she said you got a package. And it was from Ampex Records, 555 Madison Avenue, New York, New York, 10022. I ripped the package open, and there's another copy of the Runt album. Uh -huh. Looks exactly the same. And this one, there are, in fact, six songs on the A side and four on the B side. And there's a personal note, a handwritten note, and it says, Dear Mark, the copy of the album that you bought was from a pressing that was rejected and all of the masters had been destroyed except for one and accidentally 500 copies were pressed. You got one. Consider it a collector's item. Put it away. Here's the album the way it was intended to be. Keep spreading the good word about Todd. Sincerely, Paul E. Fishkin, mm -hmm. Eastern Regional Promotion Representative, Ampex Records. Uh-huh. Now, I'm jazzed. I've gotten a personal letter from the Eastern Regional Promotion Representative of Ampex Records. And um, I went up to – I took the subway into Manhattan, went up to the label, and Paul E. Fishkin was out of town doing his Eastern Regional promotional thing somewhere. But there were people at the label that were kind to me. They welcomed me. I looked around. I mean, it was – it was not glamorous. It was Ampex Records. Um, 
And uh, that day they needed someone to pack some albums into envelopes. The second day they needed someone to type up some labels. The third day I brought all this stuff to the post office. And by the fourth day they realized they weren't going to get rid of me. So they gave me a list of radio stations and said, go sit at that desk, call these radio stations and tell them that you just mailed the blah, blah, blah record. I forget actually what album I sent. But I was calling radio stations at four days into my yeah. career uh-huh. as a they ruined uh, your life, man. promotion person. <laughs> That's really what I did. didn't know Columbus, Georgia <laughs> from Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. I learned that there was a Rome, but it was in New York. There was a Paris, but it was in the Texas. Rome, Georgia, too. I There's think. a Rome, Georgia. Um, you know, and I learned my geography quick. And... Uh, I became a promotion man and uh, I went to high school and and at the end of my school day, I went into the city and I worked the rest of the day, eventually meeting Paul E. Fishkin, eventually meeting Todd Rundgren Uh and my career was started. Let's let's play a little bit of Todd while while sure. we're talking about this. This is was this might have been a song that you called about or on, on a record that you called. Like I guess it had already been out, right? Though. The, well, uh, this one, yeah, this was the single from the Runt album. The okay, uh, that, that's the, the one album you got that the, I when you were describing just a few minutes ago with pressing, the, with the yeah. botch pressing. So let's hear this. Uh, let's roll with "We Got to Get You a Woman" from Todd Rundgren here on Independence Day. boy is that you I thought your post hanging days were through sunken eyes and full of sighs tell no lies you get wise I tell you now we're gonna pull you through there's only one thing left that we can Say how and I'll say when Come and meet me down the street And this is very, very early Todd Rundgren from the Runt record with You Gotta Get You a Woman. And Mark Nathan is with us here on Independence Day. We're talking about the uh, nascent record label business in New York in the late 60s, early 70s. He's got such a great experience. Again, Mark, thank you for being on Independence Day. We're so happy to have you here. So you're you're working for this record label. Yeah, it's... And, uh... It's 1971. Uh, Todd puts out a second record, The Ballad of Todd Rundgren, and there are no hits on it. Ampex Records is folding, and um, at the very end of the year, they announce they're closing their doors. Bearsville, which was the label that was owned by Albert Grossman that uh, Ampex distributed that had Todd, they were going to Warner, Warner Brothers, and Big Tree was another custom label that was through Ampex, and they were going to Bell, and they were run by a gentleman named Doug Morris. And both Doug at Big Tree and Paul Fishkin at Bearsville offered me jobs, and I chose— How old were you at this point? I was uh, 16. Interesting. So, but was this before—because at one point you actually stopped going to school to do this Well, I graduated—what happened was 
I took the job with Bearsville. Bearsville okay. went to Warner Brothers. Okay. And I started there and it was just, you know, the early months of 1972. I graduated high school in 1972 in June. Okay. I enrolled in NYU. So I okay, had the whole I summer. I had the whole summer where I was working full time. Now I had been working for basically a year calling radio stations. Uh-huh. Um and uh, I think in the summer, I went on my first road trip and I met some radio programmers. We put out records uh, by Foghat. We put out the first album by Sparks, who uh, amusingly enough, over 40 years later, is still making records. Interesting. Um, so I enrolled in NYU. I enrolled on a Monday. And by Friday, I dropped out. So my college career lasted about four and a half days because one of the record tip sheets in the industry, we had these tip sheets. Uh, there was a thing called the Gavin Report. And the Gavin Report made Wonder Girl by Sparks the record to watch because it was number one in Fargo and it was top five in Dubuque. And I was getting it played in the Midwest and it was starting to show some signs of life. And now, you were getting, this is a paid gig. Yeah. While oh, you're, yeah. you know, even in high school, you were, it was a paid gig. Absolutely. So when I, you know, when I uh, was asked that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I wanted to be in the record business. Yeah. And I was in the record business, so I dropped out of uh, college after four and a half days and, and became a full-time promotion man. And what did your uh, what did your parents think of this decision? I mean, you seem to, you know, you were obviously very driven at this age, but were they, you know, were they okay with this? Were they like, oh, my Lord, little Marky is doomed? You know... I mean, my hair was was long enough to be tucked into my jeans. Um, it look was like, the look like a member of Leonard Skinner. I, I well, I looked a little like Howard Stern actually. Um, it was the turn on, tune in, and drop out, and I was turning on and tuning in and dropping out. But and, you were obviously, I mean, aside from that, you were very driven, though. Oh, I, absolutely. You know, maybe you look like that, but I mean, no, you were working your tail off. Look, we. I was working my tail off, but I was working with and for Todd Rundgren. And Todd was the kind of guy who liked to indulge a little bit. Yeah. So um, it's endemic in the industry, I've noticed. So I was I was doing a lot of drugs. I really was a lot. Um, you know, this was LSD. This was hash. This was uh, magic mushrooms. This was opium, peyote with the Indians. You know, this was yeah. a, a time of exploration. Let's say right. And. Um, and I was having the time of my life and getting records played. We had a gold album. And getting with paid to boot. Todd's third album was called Something Anything. It had two huge hits, I Saw the Light and Hello, It's Me. Foghat's first album was a gold album. And I told you I was going to tell you a story about uh, – we were talking about album covers. Yeah. So Foghat's first album was called Foghat. And then their second album was called Foghat, except – it had a picture on the front of a rock and a roll, like a seated roll. Mm-hmm. And so we figured everyone would call the album Rock and Roll. And this was, you know, we, we just thought we were the cleverest people. So I'm calling a record store in Augusta, Georgia, the first week the album comes out. Hello, Record Mart. Hi, it's Mark from Bearsville Records. I'm just checking to make sure you have the new Foghat album, Rock and Roll. Oh, yeah. You mean the one with the stone and the biscuit on the cover? (laughs) Yeah. So um, 
So that's how Stone and Biscuit or Stone and Bun uh-huh. became uh, the second Foghead album. But anyway, it was it was a good three, four-year run with Bearsville Records. It was an amazing time in the industry. We broke two acts. Todd, of course, put out albums like A Wizard, A True Star, and the album Todd, and his hair changed colors, and he wore butterflies on his eyes on the Midnight Special, and people thought it was just, you know, a little wacky. But um, You think it was the drugs? I, you know, I <laughs> think that it could have been. Uh, yeah. You know, when when we were sharing the peyote with the Indians, he was kind of an Indian giver. But... Um, I had a great time, and then I got a phone call from uh, Neil Bogart, and he had a new label called Casablanca Records, and they had uh, Kiss in their early days, and um, he said he wanted me to move out to the West Coast and do promotion for them. I was now 20 years old. Wow. I was uh, getting nominated for Promotion Person of the Year awards. I think they were sexist at the time. They were Promotion Man of the Year Awards. Very madmen. And um, and I moved out to California. I moved to San Francisco. And, uh, well, we put out Kiss Alive, which had rock and roll all night. And uh, then we put out three albums through a German label called Oasis Records. And I'll never forget the conference call. Neil said, you have three albums from Oasis Records. You have Schloss, and Schloss was a German heavy metal band. And you have Einzelganger, and Einzelganger kind of sounded like Kraftwerk. And those were our one and two priorities. But our number three priority was this record called Love to Love You Baby by Donna Summer. And... uh, Basically, I was on the road. I was in Roswell, New Mexico, and there was a radio station there, KBCQ, and the program director was Bill St. James. And I bring in this – now, the album on Donna Summer, it it played the whole side, like Inagata DeVita, except Love to Love You Baby was 17 minutes of disco with her kind of undulating – that that sounds like like the seventh level of hell. It was well. It was it was like nothing that people had heard yeah. before, and we had a forty five of it that had a shorter version. So we were going out to dinner, and he walked into the night jock, and he threw him the forty five, and he said, "Put this on the air." So we go to dinner, and we come back, and the night jock is like white as a ghost, and he said, "We've gotten one hundred phone calls." about this record and 95 of them told us to never play it again. (laughs) And Bill had been working at the station for two years and had not gotten 100 phone calls for all the records cumulatively. There's no such thing as bad publicity, as they say. If you get, if you get a reaction, that's, that's it. So let's roll with this. This is the Donna Summer track. Love to love you, baby on independence day. Oh, 
So that, this, Donna Summer, that's, I think that's the first time you've heard disco on Independence Day. That was a big deal in 1975. Yeah, but that moaning, yeah, I'm sure that was it. And a, in Roswell, New Mexico, the, yeah. the people were up in arms. I'm sure they were marching to the radio station with torches and pitchforks. It was pretty crazy. So now this is a song. Uh, uh, we were talking about this coming into it. So where do we where do we go from here? Now you've broken Don, Donna Summer right. in we Roswell broke, we of broke all places. Kiss, well, we broke Kiss. We broke Donna Summer, and Casablanca was off and rolling as a label. And uh, this is San Francisco. I'm sorry. I had I had the job in San Francisco, and then after about eight months, they moved me to L.A. to be in the corporate office, and uh, I went from being the West Coast regional promotion representative to a national position and um, we had a few more hits it was very exciting and then the calls started coming because the new wave was uh, just around the corner and a brilliant record man named Seymour Stein who founded Sire Records Mm -hmm. uh, he was determined I was, you know, 21, 22 years old, and uh, I wore black leather jackets with safety pins and ripped T-shirts and and knew a little bit about this punk movement, and Seymour wanted me to work at Sire Records. So he courted me and courted me, and uh, eventually I went to work for him. And uh, I traded in my disco records for the Ramones, the Dead Boys, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, uh, the Rizillos, DMZ, and a wonderful band called the Talking Heads. Let's roll with this. This is Talking Heads, and this is a this is one of my uh, favorite tracks by them. This groove they set up in the beginning of this. You can't beat this, man. So let's roll with this. Talking Heads and Independence Day. Very familiar sounds of the Talking Heads, and we were just discussing while that was playing. I mean, I grew up on this stuff on uh, WXRT in Chicago, which is my hometown, and they would play the Talking Heads incessantly. And you had played a small part in that, I'm sure. Absolutely, a big but part. With that particular song, I was able to take that to top forty radio. So, whereas you're talking WXRT, which most of your audience wouldn't know is like a heritage alternative station. Yeah. 
I was, uh, you know, getting it on radio stations like WLS and right. here in LA, they played it on KHJ and to get a talking heads record on top 40 radio in 1978 was, was, was unheard of. It's why I was as good as I was at what I did yeah. and, uh, and why Seymour went after me. So, so I worked at Sire for a while and, uh, Eventually, I just sort of needed a little break. And, um, you know, because you've been working hard now since you were 15. Exactly. It's time for a break. And, you know, I mean, a, a lot of those extra, you know, those things that we were talking about. And um, I ended up, uh, I worked for RCA for a little while. I worked for IRS. We had the Go-Go's. We had Wall of Voodoo. But uh, the Go-Go's was a big deal because just like I had gotten Talking Heads on Top 40 Radio, to get the Go-Go's on Pop Radio was a, a coup as well. And I did that. Um, I went back to work for Paul Fishkin, the guy who wrote the uh, uh -huh. Todd Rundgren letter, and we had some Stevie Nicks success. And then I went into management, and I managed a band called the Rubenews, and that was where I learned the uh, mathematical equation, 20% times zero equals zero. Mm -hmm. And so management and I didn't get along back when I was a youngster because I really needed a steady income. And uh, Atlantic Records took a shot at me and uh, brought me back to New York City after uh, an eight-year absence in California. And I started working for Atlantic, and uh, the hits were fast and furious. I mean, we had Phil Collins. We had Genesis. Uh, that's redundant, I know, but they had he had solo records too. Um, this was post Zeppelin, because yeah, Zeppelin we had. Was... I had Robert Plant solo records. We had uh, In Excess. We had Winger, Twisted Sister, Laura Branigan, Bette Midler, Benny King. I mean, the list goes on and on. We were the hottest pop label in the business, and uh, and we were selling records left and right. And so by now, now we're getting into the late '80s, and I'm in my 30s, and I'm you know, successful at what I do. And I'm on vacation in Toronto and I go to a club and I hear a song I've never heard before. And I yell up to the DJ booth, what is that? And he's yelling something back and I can't hear him. And he, I said, write it down. He writes down K-O-N-K-A-N. And he floats a piece of paper down from the DJ booth. So I go around the corner to a record store and I buy the five copies that are in the store. This is in Canada. And this was a Canadian pressing of a song called I Beg Your Pardon. And essentially, I gave one to my boss. I gave one to the president of the label. And then I sent the other three to three radio stations. All three stations added the record before we even had a deal signed with the band. So we had to scramble. The band got signed, became a number one record on the dance charts, went top five in the UK, went top 15 in America, and I segued from promotion to A&R because I had signed talent. Uh -huh. So yeah, so let's roll with this. I beg your pardon, which is a key song for Mark Nathan. When it signified his his move from the uh, the side you guess you were on before, like the label side, right? Well, Straight from up, promotion from to promotion A &R. to A and R. Okay, so let's roll with this. This is Con Can with I beg your pardon on Independence Day.
So this concan, which Mark Nathan discovered in Toronto of all monumental, places, monumental, monumental. Tell, tell, tell us why. The first pop hit single to use a sample of another hit song. That was Lynn Anderson doing "I Never Promised You a Rose Garden," which was mm-hmm. a number one record from 1970. So there was all sorts of publishing nightmares that went along with that because we had to give away most of the writing credit, uh, even though there was an original song in there. Uh, Lynn Anderson's people and the people that wrote Rose Garden decided yeah. that they were kind of entitled to more of the money. So, uh, but but really, I mean, pre pre Beastie Boys, pre hip hop, all the records that involve sampling, this was the first one to actually scale the top of the charts to uh, use another record in it. New territory. It was very exciting. And I became an A&R guy. And all of a sudden, I became the king of the one-hit wonders. I, within two years, I signed that act. I signed an act called Lanier that was like a New Kids on the Block ripoff. Uh-huh. And they had a top five hit with uh, a song called Sending All My Love. Then I signed an alternative act called called King Missile. Uh-huh. And... Um, they ended up having a big hit with a song called Detachable Penis. I can say that, right? Of course. And, um, and then I it's signed... a medical term. It's very, exactly. technic- very, very technical. Exactly. And then, uh, and then I signed an R&B record, a guy named Terry Tate. And uh, he had a top 10 record with a song called Babies Having Babies. So within two years at Atlantic, I signed these four completely inconsequential one-hit wonders uh-huh. that didn't really generate a lot of income for the label, but kept us on the charts. Uh-huh. And it was kind of exciting. And then I tried to sign a band called the Cow Sills. And the Cow Sills were the precursor to the Partridge family in the 60s. And this was 1991. And so when I went to my boss and I said, I want to sign the Cow Sills, he told me I was crazy. And I told him where he could put it. 
And he told me where I could put all of my belongings, mostly into a couple of corrugated boxes. And I was out on the street and I had been fired for the first time in my life. And, um, it was 1991, and I was no longer the youngest promo guy in the business. I was just another 36-year-old guy unemployed. Right. But – And you're in New York still. I was in New York, and uh, a funny thing happened. A friend of mine had heard a song up in Canada called The Sweater by a woman named Marin Cadell. And I had gone up to Toronto, and I purchased a copy for him. So there was a new music seminar going on in New York, and there was a Canadian panel. So I went to the Canadian panel to talk about how great this Marin Cadell, the sweater, was. And at that panel, someone was telling me about this band called Bare Naked Ladies, that I had to go see Bare Naked Ladies. And then at the end of the panel... A guy walks up to me and he says, I'd like to introduce you to Marin Cadell. And within 15 minutes, I went from feeling very, very sorry about having lost my job to thinking that the world was much brighter. Because I went to the limelight that night and I saw Bare Naked Ladies. And I saw what I thought was the greatest pop band I had ever seen. And... I negotiated a deal to become the American manager of Marin Cadell, and I really believed in this song called The Sweater. So I killed a couple of birds with one stone, and uh, I went about my uh, merry way taking both Marin Cadell and Bare Naked Ladies to my ex-boss, Seymour Stein, and he signed them both to Sire Records. Marin didn't have the success Bare Naked Ladies did, but uh, I got two acts signed in one day. And uh, my life got good again. Very, very efficient. Now, this is also where, this is kind of where our paths first cross, maybe, you know, uh, surreptitiously, perhaps, or in a strange kind of way. Like, my, my first radio experience was in college in the 90s uh, on my college radio station, WJMU at Millican University, where you were lucky if the kids in the station didn't just steal all the CDs, because back then it wasn't a big computer system. You actually had to play music, and we had records, and we had CDs, um, so I used to, you know, I, I took a shine to the sweater because I thought it was kind of funny and quirky, and I would play that on my show. And, of course, you know, and then Bare Naked Ladies would also play them, too, because, you know, they were poppy, but yet somehow had enough rock cred to kind of, like, be because I wasn't the biggest pop guy. And they allowed, um, I, you know, I would play it and dig it, and that was, like, a good side of pop and rock that kind of played together. And they, they, were, they were funny, but not so funny as they might be giants. It's like they had kind of a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, but you could take them seriously enough because they would write serious songs. Seymour Stein said to me, I, I had this demo tape of Bare Naked Ladies, and I beat the doors down of every record company in New York City. And I got laughed out of a lot of record companies because they all thought it was a joke. Be My Yoko Ono, If I Had a Million Dollars, Brian Wilson. Seymour Stein said to me, they're like Simon and Garfunkel for the 90s. Uh Now, that's the testimony to this man's genius. You know, the Ramones, the Talking Heads, before that, bands like Focus, Climax Blues Band, then after that, people like Madonna, Seymour Stein, Talking Heads, Seymour Stein has always been a visionary. But to hear those songs and know that every other record label made fun of them, and he said they're like Simon and Garfunkel for the 90s, that's remarkable. It certainly is. And they sold, a, they sold a few records, too, which is good for you. 
I'm sure. And well, good for them as well. So better for them. Better for them. Let's touch on, let, I first want to play this a little bit of this Marin Cadell song, because I, it, I saw this on your list when you send me your songs you'd like to include for our interview, and it pleased me greatly, because I probably, I probably haven't heard this song since I played it on the air on WJMU back then. So this is going to take me back and Mark Nathan back a little bit. This is um, Marin Cadell with her song, The Sweater. I know you will understand this and feel the intrinsic, incredible emotion. You have just pulled over your head the worn, warm sweater belonging to a boy. Now you haven't had a passionate kissing session or anything, but you got to go on a camping trip with him and eight other people from school. And you practically slept together, your sleeping bag right next to his. And you woke in the night to watch him as he slept, but you couldn't see anything because it was dark, so you just lay there and listened to his breathing and wondered if your heart might burst. The sweater has that slightly goat-like smell which all teenage boys possess, and that smell will lovingly transfer to all your other clothes. If you get to keep it for a few days, you can sleep with it, but don't let your mom see because she'll say, what is that filthy thing and who does it belong besides the trash man? So you have to keep it under the covers with you. You can kind of lie it beside you or wrap it around your waist or touch it on your legs or whatever, but that's your business. Now, if the sweater has like reindeer on it or is a funny color like yellow, I'm sorry, you can't get away with a sweater like that. Look for brown or gray or blue. Anything other than that and you know you're dealing with someone who's different. And different is not what you're looking for. You're looking for those teenage alpine ski chiseled features and that sort of blank look which passes for deep thought or at least the notion that someone's home. You're looking for the boy of your dreams who is the same boy in the dreams of all of your friends. I'm so sorry to roll that off because that song, like, it gets to the end and, like, the, the, the punchline is if, you know, we'll just, you know, we'll spoil it now. She gets to the point where she's talking about this sweater, she's talking about this sweater, she's talking about this sweater, and it's, it's a spoken word thing, you know. She gets to the end and she just goes, 100% acrylic is how the whole thing wraps yeah, up. Yeah, it turned that's, out that's not to be the boy of her dreams. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. So that is Marin, that is uh, Marin Cadell. Uh, which is a song I used to play on my radio station. So this is where Mark and I first crossed paths, although uh, not in a direct form, at least. And we talked a little bit about Bare Naked Ladies in there as well, but we want to move on just a little bit down the road here. Tell me about this next track we're going to talk about here. We're going we're gonna to visit here. Well, eventually I made amends with uh, the gentleman who fired me for my wanting to sign the cow sills. And Doug Morris uh, became the the head of Universal Music Group, and he brought me back to Universal, and we started... East Coast, West Coast? Where were you? Um, well, I was on the West Coast, and then he brought me back to the East Coast. I'm kind of the poster child for United Van Lines. Uh-huh. I have moved back and forth three different times in either direction, and uh, so I went back to New York, and I ended up signing... Um, the Cash Money Records deal, which turned out to be the Hot Boys and Juvenile and BG, and of course the biggest act, Lil Wayne. So technically you're sitting across from the guy who signed Lil Wayne, though Lil Wayne has never met me. But uh, I did Kinda the like Cash Money. like the Louisiana Mo- Purchase. You exactly. ended up buying a lot of stuff that turned out to be it a bunch of out other to stuff. Be, it turned out to be many, many millions of dollars worth of good for Universal. And then I... Um, 
I did a thing called A&R Research. And, you know, look, I'm talking a lot about myself, and I'd love to get into detail about how the business has changed over the years. But the part of A&R that I did was called A&R Research. And local bands, you know, a 15-year-old kid answers a fan letter to Todd Rundgren and gets a job in the record business. A 15-year-old kid who lives in Missoula, Montana, wants to be on the local radio station and presses his nose against the glass until one night the night jock is sick and the program director says, okay, kid, it's your turn. Get that kid in here. So then there's the 15-year-old kid that's musically inclined. And, you know, you get a you take a town like Biloxi, Mississippi, and you get a band together and they start writing songs and then they produce a CD on their own because now in this digital age, it's so much easier to produce music. You don't need to go into a big recording studio. You know, laptop with a and an SM57. So – so you got this band from Biloxi, Mississippi, and they go into Rock 101, the old, you know, the rock station there, and they give the program director their CD, and they put this song on the air called Kryptonite. And the name of the group is Three Doors Down. Now, I, as an A&R research guy, scour the trades, I scour the tip sheets, and I see that this song is the number one most requested record in Biloxi. Now, a normal A&R guy would go into Biloxi to watch the band play and then sit down with them and talk about, you know, the album and tour plans. I flew to Biloxi, rented a car, ripped out the page from the yellow pages that had all the record stores in it. From 10 a.m. until about 8 p.m., I went to seven different stores. I saw... You know what's strange about this story, Mark? I have to interject just for a second. Sure. A, a, like a city the size of Biloxi having seven record stores. Yeah, I'm sure they don't anymore. This, this is, that's a sad I'm sure state they of don't affairs. anymore. Anyway, I'm sorry. That's but, just... but, you know, the Biloxi, Gulfport, metropolitan area, I did a lot of driving that day. But I saw 17 people go up to the counter looking for kryptonite. And I would go up to them and go, excuse me, I, I heard you were looking to you know, buy the Three Doors Down song. You know they're from here, right? And most people didn't. They were buying the Wallflowers and they were buying Three Doors Down because that was what, what was big on Rock 101. So I flew back to New York, never met the band, didn't know if they were managed with a copy of the album that I bought for, you know, $14.99. And there was no barcode. It was just, you know, a locally uh, independently produced disc. And I said to Doug Morris, the boss, whatever we have to do, let's sign this thing up. It's going to be a hit. I didn't know how big a hit it would be. It was 5 million copies of the album were sold. And Billboard named Kryptonite the rock song of the decade. No, no small praise. Yeah. So let's hear this. Kryptonite by Three Doors Down on Independence Day.
Down with Kryptonite. My name is Joe Armstrong, and you're listening to Independence Day. This is Lancer Radio, broadcasting from the campus of Pasadena City College in beautiful Pasadena, California. Tonight, with me in the hot seat, I have Mark Nathan. He is a legendary AR guy, promotions guy, worked for a electronics manufacturer for a while, got back into promotions, and he I mean he he is a true journeyman in the true sense of the word in terms of Utility what Utility infielder. Exactly. If, you, if, if it's been done in the music business, surely at one point or another you've probably done it. Yeah. I think so? Yeah. Were you, were you ever a bouncer? No, I was never I was never a bouncer, but uh, I've done publicity, I've done marketing. I've uh, what happened was uh, you know after Kryptonite they moved me back to the West Coast. They started this uh, the internet was real big at the time. Yeah. And uh, they started this thing called Jimmy and Doug's Farmclub.com and we had a TV show on USA Network uh-huh. and um, a record company and a website. And all these unsigned bands would sign up to farmclub.com and you would vote and the the band that got the most votes I would put on TV every week. And USA Network had the show on at 11.35 on Monday nights. Now, wrestling was on from 9 to 11.34. And those four minutes at the very end was when somebody would get hit over the head with a chair and mayhem would break loose. And that was when wrestling was at its peak. So, you know, then Farm Club came on the air. But because of the way the Arbitron read, the Nielsen ratings were, you know, we we would say, oh, 6 million people watched Farm Club this week. It was really... 5.9 million that were turning their TV off after four minutes when the guy got hit over the head with the chair. But uh, I worked for Farm Club and then that failed. And then I worked for MCA for a little while. And then MCA and Geffen merged. And by now I'm 40. Yeah, now we're getting into like what, mid 90s maybe? Late 90s? Uh, Actually, we're getting into around 2002 or so. So now the writing is starting to show up on the wall by 2002. Like iPods are right on the horizon, right? They're just about to show up. And this is when... Well, actually, what we missed, we missed the beginning of Napster. And I was at okay, Universal. Yeah, that's right. I was yeah, at was Universal. And one, of the, one of the records that we had before Kryptonite was Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba. Chumbawamba, yes. And we cut the single off at 75,000 units, forcing everybody that wanted to buy the song to buy the album. And we jacked the album price up to 15, 16 bucks. And we sold about 3 million of those puppies. And you know how when you go to people's houses and you see they have all their albums or CDs in a big stack? Well, that Chumbawamba one is the one at the very back. You know, it doesn't get listened to anymore, and it's just sort of holding up against the wall. And it's it's the kind that you expect the stuffed bear to play when you press its tummy. You know, it's, it's like, like that, that kind of tune. Something like that. So, um, Anyway, you know, if Napster had been around when when Chumbawamba had been around, then I probably would have been let go long ago. But uh, we made a lot of money in those days. And then the uh, 
the file sharing uh, Pandora's box opened and a lot of the, you know, well, I won't say a lot, I'll say all of the major labels were slow to react, ill-equipped to react, both emotionally and physically. Because it happened overnight. Yeah. It's and, happened almost instantaneously. And, I, I, you know, I remember so that whole thing. You know, they're, they're suing people and, you know, like – it's like the ninety-five-year-old. It's suing. like the ninety-five-year-old lady that got patted down at the airport the other day. You know, it's like you know there are just some things you don't do, and um, so you know we we went through a pretty rough time, and uh, so we're in the early two thousands, and I'm over at MCA, and then MCA and Geffen merge, and by now I had made a lot of money on the Three Doors Down record. I decided they let me go, and I decided to start my own label. And I created a label called Flagship Recordings, and I dumped a bunch of money into it, and I failed. I put out four records that I thought were great. If you look them up, uh, you'll find nothing but glowing reviews, but I didn't get any sales, and so I lost a bunch of money. I put out a band called uh, Tremolo. I put out the first record by Brett Denon, and Brett, of course, now is a big star, but I didn't have the money to advance him for the second record. I put out Stephen Page from Bare Naked Ladies. He had a solo project called The Vanity Project, and I put that record out, and that record uh, kind of sunk like a stone, which is a shame because Stephen Page is a brilliant talent. And, uh, and the fourth record I put out was this uh, disc called My Favorite Revolution by a guy named Eugene Edwards, who's a local L.A. singer-songwriter. And I had seen him in concert, and uh, I had heard the music from the disc that he had produced, and I said I want to distribute this. And so as the uh, flagship was sinking, I put out my fourth and final album as uh, a label owner, and it was Eugene Edwards, and uh, it may have driven the nail into the coffin, but it didn't drive, drive the nail into my passion. Yeah, you know? and Eugene is fantastic. I mean, I, I've, I know him. He He's coming on our show in just about two weeks, I think. Maybe two to three weeks he'll be on the show here late, so come back for that. I don't know the exact date, but it's Excellent. one of the Wednesdays in July. And he puts on a show like you've never seen. Anybody out there in our legion of fans, if you get a chance to see the Eugene Edwards band, Whew. go see them and prepare to be, to prepare to be rocked. Because, I mean, it's like he's like a cross between, I don't know, like Elvis. He's like a cross between Elvis Presley and Elvis Costello, almost. He because is he's the got Elvis. the showmanship yeah. of, Elvis Cust of Elvis Presley and the snappy, like succinct, crafty songwriting of Elvis Costello. He's as and good a guitar player as yeah. you're ever going to find. And he plays with everybody. Uh, he, you know, he guests on you know, Wheelhouse, Brian Whelan's band. He plays with them sometimes. You know, you know he runs with uh, Davey Michelle and the guys in... Uh, neighborhood bullies who were talking to those guys about getting them on Independence Day. So I can't speak highly enough of Eugene. Eugene, if you're out there, thank you for your gifts, uh, for sharing your gifts. So let's hear a little bit of this. This is the last record that Mark Nathan put out on, uh, on, flagship. Your, on flagship records. This is It Doesn't Get Better Than This from Eugene Edwards. Washington detectives have their it's Get better 
your friend and mine, Eugene Edwards, and his tight band of hot players. Brian's on that, right? Yeah. Brian Whelan, he's the bass playing bass on there? Yeah. And Soupy, the drummer, exemplary drummer. He played with Cracker. He's played with everybody. He's fantastic. Uh, and it he, was a very overlooked record, and uh, and those those power pop guys, you know, voted it like the second best record of the of the year when it came out, and uh, and I, you know, look, I, I don't regret anything that I've done with with uh, the four albums that I put out, and I'm I'm delighted that Brett Denon has a career. Stephen Page has put out another album since then. Is he the one that left? He left Bare Naked Ladies. He's just, he's one of the greatest vocalists I've ever heard. I was with him in a karaoke bar when he did Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and nobody would follow him. Packed bar, you know, 50 people waiting to sing and then he sung and no one wanted to be next. And I don't blame them because he's got an uh, incredible voice. Um, So... So that was that story. And then I went back to the major labels. I got a call from uh, my good friend Jason Flom, and he was uh, at Virgin. And I started out working for him at Virgin, and then Virgin and Capital merged, and then it all became EMI. And for four years, I I worked in the Capital Tower. And um, I will be brutally honest. You know, you touched on the fact that I worked for Playboy and, you know, you couldn't manage a record company worse than Playboy did back in the 70s. I can only imagine. Unless you were EMI in uh, the late 2000s because uh, EMI sold to a private equity firm out of the UK called Terra Firma. They since lost control of it to Citigroup. And um, the last two years of my label life, I sat in an office and nobody knew I was there. I was like that Seinfeld character that went to work every day with a briefcase that had Ritz crackers in it. They didn't care what I did. I would wave my hand and say, hey, this record looks like a hit. And they would ignore me or, hey, this record looks like a stiff and you're spending a million dollars. And they wouldn't listen to me. It was painful working at EMI the last couple of years. And they did let me go. My contract ran out at the end of the year. And so these last six months, I've been uh, on the beach, as they say. But um, all is not lost. I am consulting. There is hope. There is hope. I am consulting for a website. I'm going to pimp it out over the air right now. Shameless plug. www.whosnext. W-H- O-O-Z-N-X-T dot com. And Who's Next is not unlike Farm Club in that the uh, unsigned acts and the independent acts uh, get to sign up. It's free to sign up. And what they do is they aggregate all of your social networks. So they add up all of your fans on Facebook, on Twitter, SoundCloud, Last.fm, even MySpace, which – was once important and may yet be. Uh, There was an announcement today that Justin Timberlake is taking over MySpace. So um, it's true. So... So anyway, Who's Next aggregates all of your uh, your social network fans, and we have gigs and prizes. We put Asking Alexandria and IC Stars on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Once a month, we put a band on Jimmy Kimmel Live. We have uh, slots on the Warp Tour, on the Dew Tour with Mountain Dew. We have opening slots at House of Blues Clubs across America and uh, Toby Keith's uh, Country Clubs 
not country clubs, but uh, country music clubs. You know, I think I might like to go to Toby Keith's country club just to see what that kind of experience Stars would be like. Stars and bars and guitars and... and rear, rear ass-kicking America Whatever it other. is, but it's, it's very patriotic. Um, anyway, it's Who's Next is a wonderful opportunity for, uh, for bands that have yet to get that big break. And, uh, and I am the head of A&R there right now as a consultant. I'm listening to a lot of music, and I'm hearing a lot of things that are promising you know yeah. the music is not dead the major label thing may be dead but music is not dead yeah. and um, there's more opportunities than ever for people to make music they just haven't figured out i mean the, the distribution model's a little hinky because they haven't there's there's this great channel in the internet but nobody's figured out how to get it from the player to the consumer in a way that's uh, financially viable right. for the people in the middle. Because, I, mean, I mean, I guess you don't need those people in the middle. I mean, maybe we never – we did at one point. Um, but now, you know, what, what, what do you see the role for labels in the future? Well, look, I learned some valuable lessons at major labels. I wanted to sign Tenacious D way back when, and then Epic signed them. And that was right at the height of the whole Napster thing. And I went to see them in Vegas about two weeks after their debut album came out. Jack Black gets on stage and he says, who bought our album? And the crowd goes crazy. And then he said, and who stole a copy of our album? And the crowd went five times as crazy. But now Jack Black and Kyle Gass were not upset because – the boxer shorts were 35 bucks. The right. t-shirts were 30 bucks. The programs were 20 bucks. The lighters the were 15 bucks. The pick of Destiny pick was $10. The, exactly. The... I mean, they were packing it in. Now, the problem is that Epic Records wasn't making any money on the, on the merchandising. Right. You know, when I was at MCA, Mary J. Blige would come up to the label and say, I need $500,000 for a video for the fourth single, from my album. Now, a fourth single on an album is not going to generate $500,000 worth of revenue, but she needed that video to be able to keep her image fresh on BET so that she could go out and play big summer tours. Yet MCA wasn't making any money off the ticket sales. So whereas everybody likes to dump on the major labels and and say that you know they're the bad guys in all of this the fact is a lot of times they were footing the bill right for you know for an artist's uh career that they weren't participating in enough of the uh the revenue streams to make it profitable and you know yeah they they soaked the consumer on the CD for years and years. And then when things happen digitally, a kid will see a blank CD for 99 cents and he'll see a kid uh, and he'll see a CD in a Walmart for 15 bucks and he won't see the perceived value as being 15 times more. So I get it. I understand. I totally understand why people steal music, but it doesn't make it right. And, um, and we are in a digital age and things are changing. Um, I hope we're going to figure out a way to monetize. You know, I hope that whoever distributes the music is going to figure out a way to make it a healthy relationship. I'm back into management. 
Now the equation that was once 20% of nothing equals nothing is now 15% of nothing equals nothing. But I'm managing two acts I really believe in. They're both signed up to who's next. And uh, I didn't find them on who's next, but I encouraged them to sign up to who's next because I really want us to build our fan base. The uh, first band is a band called the Explorers Club. And in 2008, they released an album called Freedom Wind that sounded very much like a Lost Beach Boys record. Now, their new album won't be out until probably January of 2012, but I'm going to give you a little uh, sneak preview. A little preview, six a little months taste. Early. Six months so, early. So if you're recording this and you want to go out and steal it, uh, we'll probably have to remix it anyway, but, uh, but here's a little taste of the Explorers Club. The album will be called Grand Hotel, and I think that this will be the first track from it. It's called Run, Run, Run. Run, 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 Independence Day.
the Explorers Club on Independence Day, and I am here with Mark Nathan. He is a legend. A&R Promotions. Oh, don't snort at me. The A&R Promotions. You've been a label guy. You've worked for Elisist, guys who made all the quadriverbs and ADATs. midi-verbs and ADATs and all that stuff. I mean, boy, I think everybody I knew had a, had a something verb at one point or another in the early 90s. You know, and that's that's why I mean, all my friends' records sound like they were recorded on their four tracks. Sounded like they were recorded in an airplane hangar. You could tell when they got their MIDI verb because everything sounded. They put the biggest hall they could find and cranked up that dad that dial, and and everything sounded like that. And then we all got kind of away from reverb after that. But we've got Mark Nathan. He's a legend. We're almost wrapped up here, but we can't thank you guys. I can't thank you enough for coming in and sharing all this. You know, all your experiences with us. I mean, I wish we had all night to talk about this stuff. I'm yeah, sure we I could wish tell we stories into the night. You should come back sometime. We'll have I you come back. I would love to. I'd love to i'll be less self-serving uh well now that we've now we've got your story we can start talking about some of the other funny stuff that we've talked you know we can, i'm sure you've got a million stories of all the all the artists you've worked with over the years and that uh, that what song we just heard that's explorers club they're from charleston south carolina they're a new band young guys you said these are the beach boys sounding guys right yeah and they're kind of veering a little bit towards the glenn campbell territory on that track <laughs> which is not a bad thing uh, i hear he's uh he's working on his what they or he's going to release what he think thinks gonna be his final record Right, he's got the. Uh, is it Parkinson's that he has? Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. My grandmother has Alzheimer's. It's not pretty. It's not. Um, and we'll, we will leave it at that. We wish the best to Mr. Campbell and his his. What a people. brilliant, brilliant musician. Yeah, but it looks like we're going to get another record out of him. So that's just, that's a good thing. Uh, so t- I'm, I'm, let's set up this lab. We're going to roll out with Sunbears. I've got some promotion I need to do, but let's talk about this because once I start wrapping up, it'll just kind of it'll kind of fall into the into the ether after that. So tell you, there's another band you want to talk about. This is someone else you're working with called Sunbears. What's the story with these guys? Well, what's funny is the guys from the Explorers Club turned me on to Sunbears, and uh, it's two guys, and they're in Jacksonville, Florida. And if you go on YouTube and you type in Sunbears, all one word. Um, you'll see some pretty cool experimental video that they've done. And they did, uh, they used the Kickstarter uh, website. Are you familiar with Kickstarter? Somewhat, yes. So they actually raised about $10,000 to record oh, yeah. their uh, new record. Angela Korea and her band Koreatown, they were here just a few weeks ago. And, and they, they, they kick-started. did Kickstarter. They kickstarted their record. So um, Sun Bears did a Kickstarter thing, and uh, I was one of the contributors. I've contributed to a few things there, but uh, this one I, I really uh, I put a little extra in because I really had some uh, strong belief that they were going to make a great sounding record. And uh, they've never – they've put out independent records before. They've never gone to radio. Um, they've done a little bit of touring. They played with the Black Keys. Um, they've been to New York. They've come, uh, they've come west a couple times. But they've never done anything in a, in a cohesive fashion. So I've been working with them a little bit just to get their ducks in a row when they finish this new record. Um, Hopefully there'll be a servicing to radio and hopefully we'll figure out a way to, uh, to distribute and maximize the promotion and marketing on it because I just really believe they're talented kids. Yeah, Sun Bears. So we're going to hear that. That'll be our out music in just a couple of minutes. Excellent. I just got, got another question for you before sure. we go there. Like what you're, you'll pull out your crystal ball. Where is the industry going right now? Like, I mean, do you have any, what, like if you were to put your bet down on the table, you've got a hundred bucks and you're going to bet what's, what, you know, what's the industry going to look like in five years? Is that crystal ball cloudy? Can you see anything in there? Like I what's so the writing on the I wall? I don't gamble anymore. Um, you know, like I said, it's gotten easier and easier to make great music within the confines of your own home. And um, 
and I think that there are just as many, there are probably more talented kids out there, more than ever. It's, it's depressing to see that Glee, American Idol, and The Voice make up the majority of the sales in the music industry right now. Not that any of that is bad. It's just, it's like, it's reality television on some level. I mean, Glee, of course, is a scripted show, but, you know, each week, whatever these people do on television is immediately reflected in the billboard charts. And um, I'd like to believe that at some point, we will get away from that. Hopefully, within the next five years, we will I get away from that. I can't believe people aren't bored with reality television yet. No. no it's been I a while now. It's been like 10 years. Look, The Voice, this was their first season, and, uh, and they did very well. And uh, Simon's uh, X Factor is going to start up in the fall, and that's going to do very well. And American Idol came back this year with Jennifer Lopez and Steven Tyler and did very well. And I don't know whether there will be another Carrie Underwood uh, in terms of the kind of success she had. Uh, the, the people who've won the last few years have had some success. But, you know, guys like Lee DeWise and, uh, and Taylor Hicks didn't sell the kind of records that Carrie did. But, uh, and, and Kelly Clarkson. But – you know, new stars are born every day, and um, you can go on the internet and you can you can uh, look up Allison Jane A L L I S O N J A Y N E, and she's making videos. And Perez Hilton will blog about them, and she'll get fifty thousand hits in a matter of twenty four hours. And you know, it's not the same as when we opened the show and talked about. 33% of the televisions in America watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. But, you know, when these people do these YouTube videos and, uh, and, and make themselves stars in a, in a matter of days, you know, some of them learn how to monetize it and turn it into a career. You've got Rebecca Black, right? Isn't she 15 years old, 14 years old, 13 years old? I'm not even sure how old she is. But, I mean, you know, perhaps the most annoying song of all time, but... Everybody watched it. Absolutely. You know, and there's no such thing as bad publicity. And um, and I think that there will be more of that. But what's going to happen at some point, you know, like Rebecca Black's song, radio, Top 40 Radio tried to embrace it as a novelty item. You know, play it on Fridays. And it actually sold a couple hundred thousand downloads, which is amazing when you consider how many people stole it. You know, there's a, a hip-hop act out right now that most people haven't heard of, and they're called The Dean's List, and they're out of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. They're Berkeley School of Music students. I went there for a semester once. There you go. These kids have uh, – they put out a mixtape on their own that they gave away for free, and it's estimated that 150,000 people have gotten it for free. I got it for free. And there's a song on there called Dear Professor. It has about 350,000 YouTube views, and it's selling 800 copies a week. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot. In the olden days, that would be, you know, squad, but anymore. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot, but the fact is anyone who searches on the internet can find it for free. Yet, 800 people a week for the last 12 weeks have bought it, have paid 
$1.29 on iTunes. So that's revenue that's going into the band's pocket, and that's a good thing. Because even though they gave away their music for free, which enables them to get gigs, and they can now go, they can go up and down the whole East Coast and do very well. I heard that they were in Hawaii shooting a video for Dear Professor. Yeah. Um, you know, these are these are acts that are finding ways to monetize their craft. Right. And there's there's other revenue streams that weren't available to people before. You know, before it was like, you know, the, the big goal back in the day was to get discovered and get the record deal. Sure. And that's what you're, that's what, you know, and that's where your these people perceive that's where their income came from record sales you know but what you know but what it's always been is you go and you buy the $30 t-shirt right with the $2 overhead you know right. you know and then that's that's all bank that first explorers club album only sold about 5000 albums but the first song on it forever was on how i met your mother it was on the oc it was on bored to death on hbo it's currently in a nickelodeon film or a not nickelodeon i'm sorry world wrestling federation uh movie where it's the both the opening credits and the end credits and they ended up making money in licensing yeah this uh sun bears track that we're going to end with which is also uh getting played for the very first time over the air uh it's called give love a try and i heard from two people today that do film, television, and commercial placement, and they're both clamoring to work on this record because they see an opportunity. When you hear it, it's very anthemic, and they want to pitch it to ad agencies. And you're going to hear it now for the first time, and maybe in six months, you'll turn on your TV and there'll be a gum commercial, and it'll be the you know, the music for the gum commercial. Right. And that will be enough revenue to be able to make two or three more Sun Bears albums. Right. Yeah, so people are just finding new ways. I mean, you know, the the old model's gone. The new model hasn't really taken shape. But there are, there are ways to eke out an income at it. You just have to be creative and use the tools that are your, that are at our disposal now that didn't exist even five years ago. Absolutely. So let's leave it right there. I think that's a pretty good place to talk, you know, to kind of leave off, trail off our future, uh, our crystal ball here. But Mark Nathan, I'm going to thank you now. Thank you so very much for coming on Independence Day, sharing your your breadth of experience, you know, your, your passion for life, your passion for music, because, you know, it really still does live in you. And these are the people, you're the type of person who makes music happen. And by that, I mean, it's heart. And it's belief in what music is that will perpetuate it. Ones and zeros, record needles, stereo equipment, whatever. That stuff comes and goes. But it's the people that really make a difference. And as hokey as that may sound, I, you know, I thank you for doing what you've done. Hey, it's been my pleasure. If there are any uh, aspiring musicians, young bands, up-and-coming singer-songwriters out there, if you're on Joe's website and uh, you see my name, you can just uh, delete the space in between the first name and the last name and add an at Mac.com. Send me a link to your music or go on whosnext.com and sign up and, uh, and let me know that you've signed up and I'll make sure your music gets listened to there. I uh, I really do believe in the future of this industry, and I like bands like the Explorers Club and bands like Sun Bears. I'm willing to take shots on things, and I know I'm not the only one out there. There's plenty of people who would love to identify talent and hit records. 
Very much. Well, thank you again, Mark. And now, just a little bit of house cleaning to do. I am hosting an event at KPC's Crawford Family Forum on the 21st. That's a Thursday night. That's just about two or three, well, a few Thursdays hence at 7.30 p.m. Uh, it's called Jam and Banters. We're doing a very similar thing to Independence Day, except we're doing it in KPC's beautiful Crawford Family Forum, which if you haven't seen this room, it's like a community engagement room that is absolutely fantastic. There was a Carly Fiorina debate back in the fall. They are doing community engagement events every single week in this room and it's a beautiful beautiful room we're featuring the band leftover cuties who are great a lot of buzz around those guys they just released their um, their most recent record at the beginning of may i believe uh fantastic sound kind of an edith pf kind of thing and i will be moderating a discussion about the future of music with a couple of guests that i'm still kind of working on booking right now so as soon as i have those guests i'll make sure everybody knows so please do come out to the crawford family forum 474 south raymond on thursday july 21st at 7 30 p.m to hear yours truly joe armstrong from independence day do the jam and banter series with leftover cuties so next week on independence day Morgan Margolis and Bruce Duff of Knitting Factory Records. Thanks again to Mark Nathan, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley and Wayne Topinski, also to Valentina Rivera and engineers Jesse Lopez and Victor Cornejo, writing the board from Lancer Radio. For Independence Day, I'm Joe Armstrong. Be good to one another. Yeah.